Paramhansa Yogananda, a biography, by Swami Kriyananda, Talk 16, by Asha Praver, August 28, 2012, copyright 2012, Ananda Church of Self-Realization, Palo Alto. Heavenly Father, Divine Mother, Friend, Beloved God, Jesus Christ, Christ. Babaji Krishna, Krishna. Lahiri Mahashaya, Swami Sri Yukteswar, Beloved Master, Paramahansa Yogananda, Saints of all religions, humbly we bow to you all. Help us to expand our hearts that we may receive your presence and through your grace realize within ourselves our oneness with thee. Om. Peace. Amen.
Okay. So we are now in the second class of True Christianity and True Hinduism from um, Paramahansa Yogananda, a biography. Okay. Well, the last one that we were... Do we have any questions or thoughts before we start? Anything that anybody has in mind? All right. And you don't usually, but I always like to give you a chance. So we have 15 points here, and we're now at point number four. We spent the last time on don't settle for lesser fulfillment, become perfect, even as your father himself is perfect. Number four says, it is not enough to pray to God. We must also listen for his answer in deep meditation. You know, the whole question of prayer is one of those questions that just permeates all people's spiritual thinking. The question of asking for help, of what do you ask for, how do you ask properly, and then even much more profoundly, how do you know when your prayers are being answered? And it also, in this very simple statement, it's not enough to pray, but you have to listen for your answer, it's talking about, on a very, really deep level, the nature of our relationship with God. Because so much of, especially Christian teachings, just sort of has you pray, but you don't, as Master says, it's very unscientific. You don't, you just kind of pray, you kind of put your prayers out there, you hope that somebody's going to listen to you, um, but you don't really have any way of, of seriously doing it or knowing how God's going to answer you. And also, that sort of attitude toward prayer fosters a certain passivity in our relationship with God. Because we feel like if we've prayed, we've done enough. Of course, the problem, and the Master points it out, is, and he he says it in a way that you just don't know where to go with what he says, you don't know whether God has really answered your prayer or whether your own karma has brought the result to you, which just makes makes your mind just go completely befuddled. You don't, (laughs) don't know exactly where to take that. But we often attribute, he says, to God's intervention what is really just what, what would have happened anyway, whether we prayed or not, is what he's really trying to say. That it was just the natural unfoldment of events, and then we pray, and then we think God has intervened. Um, in other words, it's, it's very confused, and it leads to a certain vagueness. And, and people get trapped, and they just don't know what to do with it. When I uh, mentioned, I talked to some about the death of my sister-in-law in um, Southern California in a Jewish context, and You know, I'm sure insofar as people were religious, they prayed that God would heal her. And then when God didn't heal her and she died, I mean, there was no discussion of this. I'm just anticipating it or pretending that I understand. Was it because God didn't hear their prayer? Was it because they didn't pray properly? You know, just you see how, how what a mess it is. But when Swami just puts in that, it's not enough merely to pray. We also have to listen for his answer. And then the next one that we're going to read, which is very relevant, is the keys to the kingdom of which Jesus spoke are meditation technique, techniques which help one to repair, prepare for divine enlightenment. Now, the keys to the kingdom, into our hands have been the sacred keys of awakening, we say in the festival of light, abundant now is our hope. And Master Jesus talks about keys to the kingdom, the kingdom of God is within Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and here are the keys for getting in. And the keys for getting in are how we work with our own consciousness. 
Because what's missing in so much of what people consider in the West to be traditional religion is they point you in the right direction, but they don't actually tell you how to get there. And they even have become, some of them which are more narrow-minded, tell you that any effort to practice meditation is, is going to lead you in the wrong direction or you're, you're not really cooperating with grace if you're making your own effort and you're not relying enough on God. It gets just so utterly confused. And so Swami's just trying to sort it out. We need to listen for his answer, but the problem is, and we all know it, our own minds are so busy that we're sitting there trying to listen to God and all we're listening is the endless loop tape of our own brain, aren't we? All the things we've been thinking about, all the things we're worried about. And the keys to the kingdom are very simple, which is there are ways to detach your heart from its likes and dislikes. And as Swamiji um, answered once, in a conversation we had, he said, people talk in meditation about calming the mind. He said, but it's actually the heart that you have to calm because the mind follows the feelings of the heart. And when the heart is not calm, then the mind is agitated. If you can calm the feelings of the heart, then the mind automatically follows. And it's all the likes and dislikes of the heart that bind us. We want this, we don't want that, we're anxious for this, we're We don't know how this is going to work out. We don't know how that thing is going to work out. We wonder why people are talking to us like this. I mean, we all have. And if you analyze it all, it's all because the things that come to us, we we divide, we favor them or we don't favor them. And all that, those likes and dislikes of the heart, create all this mental agitation, and we're sitting there trying to listen to God, and we can't hear him. But even just understanding that it isn't enough to pray we also must, in what it really is, still our consciousness and lift our awareness up. I mean, to listen to God, what does that mean? That means to be able to listen to God. And that's where the, the techniques of yoga come from. And this is all just right out of the Bible. It's just that the way Jesus told it, it was it's not clear. It's esoteric. But when you know yoga, and you hear the keys to the kingdom, then you know the kingdom he's talking about. And you know that that's your inner reality. What they describe, the definition of yoga, is to cooperate with what is, to work with what is. We are embodied beings. We are, the energy in the body flows a certain way. The way the body functions influences our state of consciousness. And so we start with that. That's why meditation starts with breath, life control, concentration at the point between the eyebrows, simple things, the position of the eyes. We just start with where we're standing and then we work our way into a deeper reality. And um, Jesus taught his disciples all of that too. It's just that he didn't put it in the Bible. (laughs) He just hinted at it in the Bible. And you have to find it by reading between the lines. Yes. Um, This just came up because you used the words cooperating with grace, but does Swamiji mention meditation in that book? Do you know? Cooperating with grace? Yeah. I'm sure he does, but honestly, I can't remember. He must have. He's, he talked about the necessity to, yes, you have to work with. It's not enough to be passive. See, meditation is to not be passive in relationship to God's grace, so it must be in there. I've only read that book once, so I can't really say. Good question. You mentioned uh, that... Um, Jesus didn't put it in the Bible. Uh-huh. What's also... Well, actually, to... Jesus didn't write the Bible. <laughs> but the other thing is that those who took what Jesus had to say 
uh -huh. and wrote it down could only write up to what their experience actually was. Yes, that's the truth, isn't it? But it's also true that it was Kali Yuga descending and he wasn't able to be as explicit. But the desert fathers, you know, St. Anthony and the others, they all went off and they meditated and they communed with God and they followed. And St. Paul, by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, I die daily. And he was referring specifically, of course, to meditation and passing out of the body. And uh, uh, it's just many, many. It's self-evident when you look at it. It's only institutions that have objected to it. Common sense people know otherwise. But the main thing is, the main point is, when he just simply says, it's not enough to pray, you have to listen. And then that just opens the doorway. It's one of those words. Oh, how do you listen? How do I go about listening? Why can't I listen? Swami tells the story about his um, uh, cousin, I think it was, who's, who gave birth to a baby and the baby was struggling to live. And the mother of the child naturally wanted with all her heart to pray for the, the well-being of the baby, that the baby would be spared, which in fact she was. But she said she was just weeping with frustration because even as she would sit to pray, she would begin to wonder what she was going to make for dinner. And she, you know, she just couldn't imagine a more urgent time. But having never um, open, used the keys of the kingdom to open the inner uh, chambers of silence, she just couldn't listen. She was just too busy. And it's heartbreaking. And that's, that, it was heartbreaking for her. So we have to realize that Jesus wants us to be able to listen. Yeah. Okay. The number six one is... Belief is no proof of anything. <laughs> I love that. Faith alone matters. And of course, this is now the distinction between belief and faith, which are, is a very important distinction. People believed for centuries that the world was flat, but that belief didn't make it so. I may believe in you as my friend, but only after our friendship has been tested by the experience of years can I say that I truly have faith in you. So what this is what uh, Swamiji is saying really simply is that true spirituality must be based on actual experience. And it's, if you ever really, people want to ask you, you know, what makes self-realization what it is, it's that it's based on our actual experience. We feel the, the bliss of living for God. We practice selflessness and we discover that it's a deeply satisfying way to live. We imagine that we don't have enough of what we need and we feel that we have to go out and grasp at what we want and then we find that with a different kind of an attitude that God will take care of us and so what was merely a belief becomes an actual experience. I know I've, I've talked to Sarah on several occasions when she's been anxious about something and I've said to her, has God ever let you down? And Sarah had to answer, no even though he's pushed her to the edge quite a few times. But nonetheless, um, faith, our faith is just the knowing, and it's not, it's not based on anybody's dogma, it's just a fact. When I was at Ananda Village um, the last week, as many of you were for Spiritual Renewal Week, I, I spoke at the Wednesday class, and to, to my surprise, honestly, I ended up speaking about some of the challenging events that Ananda's had to go through, the subject was magnetism, and I was talking about Swami Kriyananda, how I've learned about magnetism from him, and one of the ways I've learned is in some of the um, lawsuits we had to go through and just stuff we've had to go through, 
I've understood about how you, how you keep your energy going and how you keep going positively. And in one of the lawsuits we had, the second one was character assassination, and it was a serious attempt to prove that Ananda was despicable. Um, and that Swami was the most despicable among us, and he was leading us all you know, down the road to despicableness, however you want to say it. <laughs> what can you say? Um, and uh, because the legal action took place in our area, in our county, in our courthouse, it was all in the local paper, so there was never any way that this colony could do anything except just full, dis- full disclosure. We couldn't hide from it. But I heard myself say something, which I actually didn't hear. I, I thought about it later, that I... I- did not try to persuade anybody. I gave people all the facts in the world, all the facts that they wanted, um, all the facts that they would accept, more facts than they wanted as a rule. Um, But I didn't try to knit those together into a persuasive argument because, and this is what I heard myself say Wednesday, if I persuade you and you meet somebody who's more persuasive than than I, you'll just change your mind. If the only reason you believe this is because I have persuaded you, then it's just a belief. It's not your own experience. So the question is, do you find us despicable? <laughs> you know, what's your experience? What is your experience? Because unless and until we can stand on our own experience, really our spiritual life isn't worth anything. And believe me, that's a long process. I, it's been interesting for me, my involvement in this Ananda movie, in the very small way, and I've said this to some of you, as soon as that project came on the horizon, I really wanted to be part of it. And I also felt that I I could contribute to it, that I had a unique set of um, experiences that would make me a contributing member of that team. But I'm enthusiastic about so many things, and I never was able to get anywhere close to it. I mean, I was always in the wrong city or the wrong continent or the wrong something for, the, you know, for years on it. And then just all of a sudden, it just it literally came into my living room in the person of Shivani, and it just, it, it just this huge fishnet of this project came around me in which I have been entangled, totally entangled for many weeks and will remain entangled for many weeks more. And that in itself is positive. I'm, I'm enjoying it, and I'm finding that my perception was true. I do have a certain experience that will help. But mostly it's been interesting to me to realize how much energy I've wasted in my life chasing things. You know? You make yourself receptive. You tell God that this seems like a good idea, and you tell with full force. But you don't have to chase things. Because if it belongs to you, it will come to you. And I have known that for a very long time. But this was a very interesting, because somehow it came at me so, with so little uh, willful energy on my part. Now, I have always believed that was true. But now I have deeper faith in it because I've had an experience of it being true. In the life of Jesus, at the end of his life, apparently masters at the end of their lives, often do a little house cleaning. Master did that too, and Swami Kriyananda was just there mostly for the end of Master's life. But there was a time when all the monks, um, Swamiji tells us, were all being tested, and many who had been there for a long time left. And it was very disheartening for Swamiji, who had really just arrived, to see these senior monks um, fleeing from the ashram. But then Master said to him, Oh, 
Satan is testing the organization, is how he put it. But then Master was even more clear with Swamiji. You know, his life was not going to go on that much longer. And Swami understood this later, too. And whereas Master himself could sort of hold a certain kind of energy together by his magnetism, once he was gone, things needed to be able to sustain themselves in a way that... um, was appropriate. They needed to be, it, the group needed to be strong enough to be able to carry on without Yogananda there. And in the life of Christ, it was so explicit. He, he, that was when he said, eat my body and drink my blood. And I believe he probably said a lot of other things. Because it even made it into the Bible that the disciples said one to another, this is a very hard teaching. And from that point, many walked with him no more. He was driving the weak ones away because he knew how he was going to die. He knew that they would be persecuted. He knew that if they were going to stand strong, there couldn't be any weak doubters among them. The ones who were left had to be able to be totally united in their understanding and in their commitment. So he tried to drive them away. But Master says what he was really testing, it wasn't really about whether Jesus was a true master or not. It was whether the disciples had true faith in their own experience. Because all of a sudden, Jesus is not behaving according to the rules that they themselves had laid out for him. And, and when he stops behaving, when Swami Kriyananda stopped being a sannyasi in 1981 and decided that he, he would marry, and he would marry, as he as it gradually emerged, he would marry for the sake of Ananda, because we were not a householder community and there was just no understanding of how to be a spiritual householder and there was no respect for it. And he felt deeply guided by Master that he needed to model that stage of life, even though he had been a monk his whole life. And Master assured him that it it was fine, it didn't matter. But when Swamiji stopped being a sannyasi and had a woman as a partner, um, people just were just upset he had just stepped out of the parameters that they had set for him. And he also said to us that he, um, he wasn't about to live according to our opinions about him. <laughs> and he said it pretty much that directly, which is, you know, I'm owned by God. I'm not owned by you people. You know, so often people in positions of leadership begin to feel they have to live up to what other people expect of them. And it's often the death of their own inspiration. And Swami just was going to follow his own inspiration in doing that. And one of my friends beautifully said, and she was a little more, um, you know, she was a little disconcerted about it because like all of us, she'd had a particular point of view. But this is what she said. I noticed that it didn't have any effect on his consciousness. That he changed his lifestyle, but it had no effect on his consciousness. And as soon as she saw that, she just like, what difference does it make? What we're here to relate to is consciousness. But you see, she had the sensitivity to perceive that, and she had the faith in her own experience to just say, okay, I came for his consciousness. His consciousness is just the same. If he chooses to live a married life, what, what difference does that make? That's not really the issue. But how easily, if one has only a belief that this person is spiritual because of these certain things, and now he doesn't do these certain things, and so now he's not spiritual anymore, there's no faith in that. Um, when I first married David and 
I had to sort of move out of this extremely impoverished way of living, simple to the point of impoverishment. And I had to realize that I had a certain belief that if I was poor, I was holy. And if I lived comfortably and was not impoverished, then automatically I ceased to be spiritual. I was very threatened. That was, of course, just a belief that I had. There was no, nothing to substantiate it, but it was a deeply held belief at the time from many lifetimes of having had that inculcated into us. You see, that was a belief that wasn't made true merely because thousands of people had said it to me for many incarnations. And I had to go through the experience of discovering because David just wasn't made that way. He just thought everything is energy and what difference does it make? You know, you can live comfortably, you can live simply, you can be wealthy, you can be poor. Just, he never saw that. as He never believed that was a criteria. And so I had to have the experience, which was very freaky for me, of finding out if I could be just as dedicated if I had a nice house, relatively speaking, nice house. And I was really very tense for me until um, my belief was shattered by my experience. And then I had faith in something else. So in the specifically institutional religion often tells you that it's all about your belief. You just have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And many people want to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and do believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but they really have not had enough experience to really have faith in it. And then their faith gets tested. It's good to have your faith tested. You know, with the whole experiences that we went through with being sued and having to fight and all the things that we had to do. Our faith was really tested. And at the end of it, it's just, you know, you just came out in a completely different place. I believed, and not just Swami, I believed in Ananda. I believed in the work we were doing. I believed in Master's mission. I believed that Ananda was essential to Master's mission. But after we went through that, I mean, I had absolute faith that we were born to do this work and that nothing, nothing can stop us. We can't allow anything to stop us. Very, very different, very different feeling. It was like from being a a child to a grown-up. Just that much different. So what he's also saying here is that you have to seek to build your faith by your actual experience. You can't just rest calmly on what other people have told you. And when your beliefs are suddenly tested a little bit, it's a very good thing to see if you can move your beliefs into actual faith by really knowing um, what has happened to you, how God has taken care of you, what your life is like. It's vitally important. Any questions or thoughts on that? Yes, Biraj. I had started to um, form a question about the listening one. That was not enough just uh-huh. to... But it's not enough just to pray, but you yeah. must also listen. And the question had started to form, we don't actually, within our, within our congregations, Vananda, we don't seem to actually, in our books or in our sermons or anything, we don't talk much about the result of that listening. You know, we say it's needed, but we don't express what actually happens when you listen, what, what, has, what have different people experienced. But then it became clear to me one of the reasons why we don't, as you went on, because it won't do any good. It'll just create belief huh? if somebody else hasn't actually experienced it for themselves. Well, that's actually true. You know, we take our model from Swami Kriyananda, and even though he manifests the results of his attunement, and often he credits his attunement 
um, for um, he, he credits the ben- the beneficial things you see in his life the, to his life to his attunement and so on like that. He doesn't really describe experiences. He rarely does. More so recently, very recently, when he would, will refer to bliss and will refer to things like that. But for most of the time that we've lived with him, he would rarely refer to the fruits of his own spiritual practice. And uh, he, would, he would just allow us, is the word infer them from the evidence in front of us? You know? Um, I know when he was uh, charged with being despicable in the course of those lawsuits since I mentioned them, um, he wouldn't defend himself, but he looked at us one day, us, meaning a large satsang, and said, no libertine could accomplish what I've accomplished. <laughs> you know, if I was dissipating my energy and wrong living, I would never be able to do what I'm doing. And, you know, it's sort of like, if you discover it yourself, it's more powerful than when other people put it on you. I've lamented in a peculiar way the increasingly explicit reverence shown to Swamiji. Because it causes people to anticipate that response within themselves instead of discovering that response within themselves. Whereas when he, when there was, uh, when there was no uh, hoopla <laughs> associated with him, then if you sensed his consciousness, you genuinely sensed it. You didn't um, make yourself sense it. Does that make sense? And so, it, fortunately, it hasn't ruined us, but I was concerned that it would. You know, I mean, th- th- everything has its benefits. It's a different stage of life. It's a different time for him. You know, it, it, going to Italy and especially going to India, where in both countries, people are far more accustomed to responding from the heart to what they experience, where in America, people are inclined to evaluate and so it's more difficult for Americans to... And also we don't... The American tradition is not a tradition of saints or holy men. We're just not at all accustomed even to the idea of saints or holy men. So if you see someone who's supposed to be, you're not really quite sure how to deal with it. Where Italy is very accustomed to the idea of saints, and of course India is based on the concept of holy men. So when such a one enters their atmosphere, they know what to do about it. In America, we're just a little puzzled, or else we've gone to this extreme that has mostly been imported from India of, of uh, just a different way of, of relating yeah. that Swami never allowed ever oh, we're closer. 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 you know when I first saw Swami um, well I hadn't known Ananda very long and he just seemed like an old man to me, mm-hmm. you know, and um, and I'm not sure still. I know I feel something when I see him now, but I don't know if it's because I'm feeling what the what the crowd is feeling, right. you know. But um, when I start to think about all that he's accomplished, you know, then then that's I guess where I get my faith, and and if I look into his eyes. Then you know, and I can see him in meditation and stuff like that. But, but um, it's hard for me to visualize him. You know, just this man up on the stage. You know, 
I, I don't like saying that, but it's true. No, no, I think honesty is always the best policy. Yeah, you won't get anywhere with hypocrisy anyway, so you might as well just well, be honest. You know, I, I, I met him once, uh-huh. and when I met him, I started crying, and I don't know why, because I don't normally cry. Mm-hmm. And, and so it was, it was the strangest thing, you know? Yeah. And so do you think that that means that he had some kind of effect on me? I don't well, know. self-evidently. <laughs> <laughs> what, what you're actually asking is, what does that mean? But self-evidently, it had some effect on you because you don't usually cry, and all of a sudden you were. Why on earth did you do that? Yeah, it was. I don't know. It was the weirdest thing. Well, Marilyn, I mean, to to deal with it very realistically, he is an old man, Mm -hmm. and uh, you know, one works one's way to this through many different angles. You're you're experiencing Ananda, and Ananda is completely changing your life. And you're astute enough to figure out that, that he's largely responsible for what you're experiencing. And when Jesus was asked the question, how do you tell a true prophet from a false one? Jesus answered simply by the fruits. A good tree gives good fruit, a bad tree gives bad fruit. So if you're living in the fruit of this man's life's work, the chances are pretty good that the man himself deserves at least some credit and certainly some gratitude, and, and also that what you are able to access is a reflection of the source. And um, so even if the source and him and his body and his personality or whatever it is haven't all sort of come together for you, it doesn't really matter because your, the, your own experience and, and your honesty and your intelligence is leading you to that, and it... It doesn't have to turn into... That's sort of what I was saying, that a lot of ashrams have imported from India a kind of formalized, what we would call guru bhakti, where it's all about devotion to the guru and uh, you know we flash lights in front of the guru and we all sit at the feet of the guru and, and the guru touches us and everything happens. I mean, it's all a very valid path, but it's just like totally guru bhakti. Swamiji being American, him being a disciple of Master, him following Master's ways, it's just not the way we're constituted. But nonetheless, when you come all the way back to it, Guru Bhakti is a very valid part of the path. And even if it doesn't rise to that level, it's only gracious to recognize the debt we owe this man. And on whatever level you want to put that... um, if you're going to take the fruit of his life's work, and as you know, you and I were even talking about this earlier, just the magnitude of the force he's put forth, and we're all um, you know, being fed by that banquet, it behooves us to be grateful. And in that gratitude, a certain magnetism is also built up, an appreciation which takes you deeper and deeper. And you know, if, if one begins to become curious, you, know, you listen to the music, you listen to talks, you make an effort to tune in, you become interested. When other people who have more experience than you speak of it, then you become curious. You don't become credulous, you know, just like without any discrimination of your own. But if you're a thinking person, you become curious. I mean, his, Swamiji's capacity to enlighten us about Master has been entirely because of his conviction. And I often think about the fact that St. Paul 
never met Jesus, but was, as the story is told, he was on the way, on the road to Damascus to persecute the Christians and was struck blind. And in, that, in his uh, unconsciousness or seeming unconsciousness, Jesus appeared to him in living force of, form of Jesus and who he'd already died and uh, said, well, you know, why are you persecuting my people? And when Paul finally recovered from all that, he had been Saul, he became Paul, and he became a great disciple and advocate. And undoubtedly many times after that, although they don't talk about it that much, he must have communed with Jesus all the time. And then Paul just traveled around, and he told everyone about Jesus. The entire Christian movement, or the magnitude, most of the Christian movement was created by Paul walking around telling people about Jesus, his power, what he could do for us, what he, who he had been, why we should be devoted to him. Paul himself had never met him. But Paul's conviction awakened others, and they were so persuaded by Paul, by Paul's nature, by the fruit that they saw in front of him, that they were inspired to go through him to Jesus. And it's, it's really something when you think about the the a force that man must have had, therefore, to be able to do that. And I'm sure many people, you know, liked what Paul said, and then maybe they liked Paul, and then they started thinking about Jesus. And so it's all, it all follows. Belief is not enough. You have to really follow through on it. You know, I was, I was for some reason, thinking about um, Paul, Paul today. Uh-huh. Um, and I started thinking, Swamiji's soul must be very tired. His soul? Well, no, his soul is not tired at all. It's not? Because his soul because is in every new bliss. I was just thinking about him in that incarnation and then being Henry, you know, and, oh. and so he's been doing this for so long, you know, coming well, along and promoting things afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> it's the other, it, it, the, it's just not the soul that's tired. The soul doesn't care. Swami himself has said on many occasions that he's not really interested in coming back. And then on other occasions, he says, basically, given his nature, the chances are pretty good he's going to come back. <laughs> but he also, yeah, and yeah, sometimes he'll say both things at the same time. So yeah, there's a certain soul weariness. You could call it soul weariness. The jiva is pretty tired of the whole thing. And, and also, you know, at the end of your life, um, you have to start beginning to repudiate it a little bit. You know, you, you can't. He said Master himself, you know, just began to repudiate. He was less enthusiastic about everything in the last few years. Just because you have to start cutting your ties and going forward. So, we'll see. But yes, when you think... Well, that's why Swami, when one of the disciples, his fellow disciples, had a vision of himself being a disciple of Master on Lemuria, which was, what, thousands of years ago, if it even was such a place... And when that's when Swami went almost in a panic to Master. Have I been your disciple for a long time? I mean, how long have I been doing this? You know, for thousands of years. And then Master said, well, it's been a long time. That's all I'll say. But Swami also tells, you know, he's so just easy and open about it, that he, he was told by Brigu, and he believes that it's true, Brigu, the ancient sage who wrote up the future, that he achieved Shanti in his vrittis, that he achieved a very high state of consciousness and then fell from it because of he had an argument with his guru. I mean, so like how many times have we been through this? 
On one hand, it's freaky. And on the other hand, in a paradoxical way, I always find it very relaxing. Because it also makes me think, "Eh, there's a lot of margin here. We just do our best. And sooner or later, we get it straight. We just don't have to be in a panic about this all the time. Um, I was talking with... Um, talking with Essay about uh, Swamiji, about that topic, about him falling from a high state, and I guess I'll just ask you if he's ever mentioned it. Is that necessary? It seems so, like I've heard it in other places, it seems so common that, is that sort of... Something inevitably that we all go through? Well, let's just say there's a lot of examples of it, whether it it seems like it's such a... um, such a potential. And Swamiji's written it up really interestingly recently, very recently, in both the Patanjali and in Master for the World, in trying to explain Tara Mata, who Master said was very, very advanced, and Swami himself says was very, very advanced. And how could she be so advanced and then so awful at the same time? And, he, and he, Swami has also asserted, and even Daya actually said this once, that she fell from her high state of awareness, although Swami also says, being highly advanced, she recovered quickly. She recovered after she died, but she would, she would recover quickly. But he explains how in the preliminary, I mean, this is, this is just words to me, but in the preliminary state of samadhi, sabhakalpa samadhi, in which you experience that infinite as yourself, there's still a shred of ego there, and he says he felt what, what, what happened to her, and he describes it really exactly, is that she began to think she herself was um, infallible, but she identified that with her ego, that shred of ego that was there. And that's what Swami talks about. He argued with his guru in the lifetime in which this happened for him, so he began to assert his own perception against his guru's perception, And that would be the same error, that you have such an expanded state of awareness that you mistake your own wisdom. So does it have to happen? I don't know. Is it likely to happen to everyone? It seems like the kind of lesson that everyone would have to learn, doesn't it? That you would just, if the tide comes in and you, you have to make every mistake there is before you stop making them. Let's just kind of relax and let's just kind of deal with what's immediately at hand and when it becomes relevant, we'll know. <laughs> Stacy, I'm make a comment. Uh, when Swami was talking, he said so much good stuff. And At first, you know, I read his books along with Yoganandas and I really felt connected with Yoganandas by reading, by reading his books. Uh-huh. And, um, and I heard so much about Swamiji, but then when I saw him, I just, I, I was just, I don't know, in the zone or whatever, and I just uh, got so much from it. And when he was talking about having doubt at one point, when he was with Guru, he then he just got choked up, which always just like tugged at my heart. Um, he said, but I just loved him so much, and that's what brought him back. And I just thought, oh, that just is so beautiful. And then also the fact that he's you know, um, was with uh, Master for four years before he passed. And he was, he met Master when he was 22, is that right? Okay, so 22 to 26. So, 
I just was thinking how profound the experience must have been for him to go through all of these challenges and to always have that faith. And the faith um, is so connected with his love for our master. And I just thought that was just really beautiful. It's abs- that's wonderful, Stacy. I mean, that's just so, that's so everything. That's just everything. That's the whole path. We go through that over and over and over again until we finally stop making mistakes. You know, we just get so solid in it that nothing can take us away. Swami talked about that dream he had where he was being burned at the stake. And uh, he, he, just, he said it was sort of an odd dream, as dreams are. He said he was being burned at the stake, and in the same room, the people who were burning him at the stake were just having dinner at a banquet table. And he was over here being burned at the stake, and they were over here at the banquet table. And then, and, but he was just being burned at the stake, and he felt, you know, well, it'll hurt for a little while, and then it'll be fine. And then, as it was in the dream, he, he was rescued. But when he was rescued, he said in the dream, he was, he was no more elated about being rescued than he was about being dismayed about being burned. It was just all experiences. And he, he said afterwards he was very pleased, you know, to just sort of see that even in his subconscious state, which he's long since commented is pretty much the same as his conscious state, um, he had that same equanimity about life. You know, I mean, that's real faith. That's not just the belief that what God sends you is, a good, is, is fine and is in your best interest. That's a much, where there's just not even a, resp- a reaction. Okay, so we'll be burned at the stake now. Big deal. And it's, it sets an example for where we're really trying to go. God, I love God. God loves me. I love Master. Master loves me. He sent me this, so we'll go through it. And everything is just a blip on the radar screen of the greater reality. I, I mean, you know, I have my, my heel, the skin on my heel gets dry and it splits and I keep thinking about the pain. And I think, oh dear, what would happen if I were burned at the stake? You know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so we get, everything is a chance to practice. You just practice and practice. Everything you, that, you, that you start to react to, start to have a preference to start to cause to shift you off of your equanimity. Oh no, let me just practice. Just practice this as much as I can and that's how you, that's how you build up to being burned at the stake and accepting it with the same calm. You're always working on the likes and dislikes of the heart. It's, it's by no means easy and believe me, it's, not a, it's no uh, automatic thing just because we have the belief that we're able to do it is different than really being able to do it, having the faith that you can but you just practice. You, you practice from the first day you get on the spiritual path and you practice till the body's gone. We've been watching our friends die recently. It's been quite you know, amazing to watch our friends die because there's the fruit of the whole life. You know, now I'm never getting off this bed. Now I'm never going to see my grandchild. You know, now I'm in terrible pain. Now all these different things. Oh, well, here we are. Let's see how we can go through this. And the fruit of this spiritual path has just been stunning when it's seen in death. Because death is, you can't fake it at that point. You just are, you are whatever is. Whatever you is, you is at that point. <laughs> and um, it's pretty impressive. It's more than that. It's very impressive. Pretty much everybody. It's inspiring. Oh, it's, it's, it's amazing. When, when, it, when Vairagi was passing away, she had cancer and I went up to see her. We had a little unfinished business, and um, she she was it was the last week of her life, and she had been asleep or unconscious when I came in, and I just sat sort of next to the bed, and 
Then she came to and she looked at me and she said, Oh, it's you. <laughs> and then I said, You were hoping to see Swami or Master, weren't you? She said, Yes. <laughs> and I mean, I didn't take it personally. It wasn't meant personally. It was more just like, Oh, it's, you know, I'm not in the astral world yet. Oh, rats. <laughs> she just kept hoping every time she'd go down, she wouldn't come back. But she did. Eventually, of course, she didn't. But it was just so, even that was just so lighthearted. And so real. Huh. Sure. Uh-huh. This question, but does one's karma actually prevent them in a way from being receptive enough to hear the message and feel the message of this path? You mean the people who just don't pay any attention to this path? That it just it doesn't draw them. Oh yeah, you're. You, you know, you have. Your karma is that the whirlpools is whirlpools in the spine. I mean, that's how karma is carried from life to lifetime. Is all, everything that you do, all your actions and thoughts and so on, register as of riches in the spine at whatever vibrate vibratory level they're happening, and you become an energy pattern. And that's why people have vibes, they have auras, they have a feeling, they become an energy pattern. And that energy pattern is the product completely, not only of this incarnation, but every incarnation you ever lived. There's nothing, you can't cheat on that one, it just is. It's nobody's opinion, it's not whether God likes you or not, it's not your church membership. It's just the literally, the vibration of your consciousness for many, many incarnations. It's not the things that you've done, it's the vibration. And then, of course, when your physical body dies... That's your astral body, it goes with you and then it re-manifests. And that ends up being that you have a certain field of magnetism. And you, you, your collective vibration is just at a certain frequency. And a, the principles of self-realization vibrate at a certain frequency. And if you're not vibrating on that frequency, they, they can't penetrate your aura or even if they happen to flash past you, you don't even see them, literally. And you certainly don't see them for what they are. But you could be vibrating on a level where really fundamentalist Christianity just is so true to you. Jesus died for my sins. If I love Jesus, everything will be fine. And somebody who's vibrating on a different level will hear that and think, really, are you kidding? But, but if you're vibrating on that frequency, it'll just come right in and stick to you. Yeah, so you'll hear it in the Bhagavad Gita, it says somewhere, I've, I've actually remembered this a little more colorfully than it's written, but it says in essence, you know, at first people talk about the spiritual path and you don't even hear it. Then people talk about it and uh, you fall asleep when they talk about it. That's the first one. When people start talking about you fall asleep, I actually have had that happen. I started talking to someone once about the spiritual path, a relative, very inappropriately, and right before my eyes he went to sleep. Just, you know, it was just like, it was so like not his time. <laughs> so first you fall asleep, then you don't comprehend it, then you comprehend it but don't remember it, then you have a mild interest, you know, it just goes. And, and all of that is as you're refining your magnetism, and you're refining your magnetism according to how you, the actual reality of your perception of the world. So you can be, you have a very narrow religion but have a very high understanding of it. Um, Richard Wormbrand, who was a 
Jew who converted to Christianity and then became a Lutheran pastor. Lutheran, I think some pastor, I don't know his faith. But he got persecuted first as a Jew by the Nazis. He lived in Romania. And then afterwards he got persecuted as a Christian by the communists. So he had a pretty tough martyr's life. Spent years in jail. Really, really. The book he wrote was called Tortured for Christ. It's, It's a great book. And he's a great man. And even though his theology is about an inch wide, his consciousness was enormous. I presume he's off the planet now. And uh, we all had so much regard for him, and so did Swamiji. He came and spoke at a church in Grass Valley when we still lived up in that area, when I still lived up there. And the whole of Ananda went to see him because we knew this was a great man. And there were so many of us the church was, it was built in a peculiar way. It had kind of a, an arch. The pulpit was like in this arch. And on one side you could face into the sanctuary and on the other side you face into like the dining room. And that was like as if this room was divided in the middle. And they put all of Ananda on one side and then all of their people on the other. And uh, Wormbrand turned and talked to us about the formless Christ and the, you know, the <laughs> capacity to experience God everywhere and, and on. Then he turned back and then he'd talk about Jesus and the Bible. And he, he just kept, I don't think he was really conscious of it. It was just when he turned toward us, that was what came out of him. And when he turned the other way, something completely other came out of him. And, and he was very warm. And he somehow, he picked Swami out. And then he, in the middle of his talk, he stopped and he said, Tell me, is it a requirement of your community that only beautiful women can join? <laughs> and then Swami said, oh no, he said, but after they join, they become beautiful. And you know, then the two of them sort of laughed together. But it was, that's what he was seeing. He was just seeing so much light. And I mean, theologically, we would have been absolutely as far apart practically as you could be. And he maintained his position in the church, but his experience was completely other. Yes, Adam. It it came to mind the story of, um, I forget who it was, but someone who was a minister for a a pastor for a very, very long time in a Christian church then had a real spiritual experience then recognized it as sort of not a true teaching. Right. How do you reconcile those two stories? Um, That was John Tetmer. and And the book he wrote was called I Was a Monk. And he was a Catholic priest. And he worked in the Vatican. Um, because he was a teacher of theology. And as soon as what happened to him when he had an actual mystical experience is that he realized that the the theology was just completely wrong. But you see, um, he was was a a voice of the church, whereas Wormbrand was a voice for Jesus. And so he, and the church teachings are not really wrong, you know, except on the level that John Tetner was working, they were. (laughs) <laughs> and he just couldn't, he couldn't do it anymore. That makes sense. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think Wormbrand, I don't know who John Tetner was, I don't want to say, but Wormbrand certainly had experiences that proved his spirituality. I mean, Tetner, after he left the monastery, got married and became an actor in Hollywood. You know, and Wormbrand was a saint. So it was a very different, really a different reality. I mean, Christine, at the end of his life, he said everything I've written was that's exactly right. He had, he had such deep experiences, he just stopped writing and repudiated all his writing. Yeah, because it was just the like... The doctors of the church, one of the most respected. Yeah, exactly right. 
And you know, there's, a, there's one here. Let me see where it is. Um, yeah, tr- I'm going to skip here. Christ, this is number eight, I haven't read number seven. Christ's true teachings can never be confined within the walls of any institution. Anyone, anywhere, who fulfills his commandment to live for God and to love him with one's whole heart is as much his follower as anyone who ever declared himself a Christian. I mean, that's another principle of Jesus' teachings is there was no church. Jesus had a direct revelation of God and tried to help people understand how to have revelations, the experience of God. Everything that happened afterwards was not really his teaching. I had a, the funniest conversation with my, um, one of my Episcopal priest friends a friend of mine who's an Episcopal priest, and um, he has a doctor of divinity or at least a master's degree of divinity from some very prestigious school. He has several degrees from very prestigious schools. And uh, I often would ask him questions about church history and so on. And at one point I started talking to him about something, and he started explaining to me how the full revelation of Christ did not come out it came out over several centuries. And it was only as... Yeah, that's what I did. Several <laughs> centuries passed before the full revelation was there. And he's a, he, uh, my friend was a follower of this path. I said, wait a minute. You're saying that Jesus himself did not know the, 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 the whole of his teachings, that it took three centuries of churchmen before they figured it out? And he just looked very chagrined and sort of talked about how confusing his life had become since he met me. (laughs) And how much easier it had been before we had crossed paths. But that's really how they, they, they actually... I mean, I just said to him, that's preposterous. What you're really saying is that people of lower and lower consciousness just gradually just began to make it up after their own image. And because it diverged so much, they had to justify it. Oh dear, that was when he said, oh, my life was so much easier. You know... But that is what happens, and, and some of it is nefarious, but much of it is just well-meaning. People are just operating at the top of their game, and that's the top of their game. And they may even really love God, but don't ever think that's true. Let's take a break for a moment. You're about to ask a question? Okay, let's take a break. Short break. ...to be asked, but before that there was another clarification required. When I was talking about the movie and you know, your own will surely come to you. You have to also understand that you have to work like crazy for your own to come to you. <laughs> and the, uh, the sense of faith is, is nishkam karma. It's not in the lack of acting. I mean, if you have to be a very high soul to be able to just sit there and have everything come to you. I mean, that's a, that's a, a state that Patanjali describes where the fruits of labor come without any action. The jewels fall into your lap. For most of us, we have to work very, very hard. We have to do every possible thing that's in front of us. We have to put out our energy. And in regard to the movie, since I brought it up, I was always willing to do anything. It just I was never able to get into it. It just never happened for me. But I wasn't passive. It just wasn't there. I wasn't passive in my heart. As soon as the opportunity came, I just gave all the energy I had to it. So often in our lives, you know, God works us, you know, to the bone. <laughs> but... It's, it's more internal than that. I don't have to be anxious about it. We certainly have to put out energy, though. Sakinesh, did you have a question before Adam asked you? Yeah. I was just wondering, 
just think about the example that you gave about the movie and your involvement in it. So, uh, personally, I was also going back to some of the things in my life, the things that I've, I wanted, and it was, I was sort of inclining towards an opinion that probably I wanted these things because these were going to happen, because a lot of times in my life I just end up saying, oh, I want this, but I really never felt that, but that ends up happening. So it was almost like it was sort of not a clear distinction. It's like I want these things because they are going to happen, and they happen because I want these things. It was always between these yeah. two things. I was never able to make a clear distinction there, but because a lot of things I never knew I wanted, but I just used to, even as a child, I used to just say that, oh, I want to do this. And at the age of 15 or 16, I ended up doing it. Yeah. I really didn't know that I wanted it, but when I did it, I actually realized that, oh, you, you know what? It was and always there. It was yeah, always it was there. always there. I, yeah. just, I was not putting in any effort. So, yeah. But you see, we operate on many. The, the, and actually, Adam's question is very similar to what I know, I, he's already asked me, but he's going to ask everyone. Um, often we know better than we know. We think we're being guided by our minds, but we're being guided by our inner selves, by our karma. So we, we're operating, the mind is running circles around it, but there's a deeper part of us that's moving forward, and that's what you're saying comes to the fore. Yeah. Adam? Question. My question was um, based on the, going back to the, um, you know, that we need to listen to God, and I was relating an experience that, um, you know, I was, I, I basically had a, something I needed answered, but it had an emotional tinge to it. And so after I was praying, I couldn't, like you said, calm the heart. I wasn't able to do that. And I still was listening for the answer, and I was sort of using techniques like holding up one option, holding up the opposite, and it just, my heart wasn't calming either, so I couldn't really trust what was coming because it felt like it was from the mind. Um, and then sort of something happened that um, I, I got uh, sort of an answer in another way from, from a person who called me and said something about the situation that I'd been talking to them about it earlier, but it sort of came through. They're like, oh, I thought about this and I wanted to tell you. And I, I guess the question was, um, in very simple terms, is listening to God, is, is listening to God truly only possible in meditation or right. should we be listening in other in ways? ways? Well, I'll answer the end of the question first. If God can talk to you, he can probably talk to someone else too. <laughs> and you might come up in the conversation. You know, some people have this extremely stubborn idea that the only possible place they can get guidance is themselves in their own meditation. But it's a very, very dangerous idea because we're so susceptible to self-deception. And it's so much easier for someone else to see ourselves, see us more clearly than we can see ourselves. So in principle, absolutely. I mean, out of the mouths of babes, um, advice can come. But another aspect of the question, which we had been discussing a little bit before, was... And I'm just going to, I'm going to give you, and I'm going to call it the gospel according to Asha, which is a very important distinction because this isn't really the gospel according to Swami or according to Master. This is just my little tidbit of how I've tried to sort this out. I've always been really scared about inner guidance. Um, I think I must have misled myself really badly in many incarnations. I have an extremely suspicious attitude toward my own ability to, to get clear answers from God in the 
let me sit down and meditate and see what God says sort of way. Um, uh, I, I, mental illness is a stage on the spiritual path and false visions are a stage on the spiritual path and um, Patanjali has a point, you know, hallucinations, false visions is one of the obstacles to the spiritual path. So everybody has their own karmic position. So this is, I say all that to say that I'm colored by that. I've always been, I, nervous is too strong a word, but I've always, I've never really sought to run my life by sitting and meditating and seeing what God says to me, because it's always seemed to be like an intensely unreliable way to run my life. <laughs> and I've also been very hesitant. For many years, I wouldn't even teach the subject of intuition or guidance. And I was on the phone with Swamiji once, and I said, basically, I said, you know, I don't even want to talk about this subject. And he corrected me. Asha, he said, the ability to receive intuition is everything on the spiritual path. And he, and I said, well, so many people are misled by it. Yes, he said, but they'll learn. He was just, you know, very casual about it, that we have to cultivate that. Now, in a true sense, in fact, I have a lot of intuition and a great deal of what I do, I do it intuitively without even calling it that. But I'm also... I have seen so much misunderstanding from people who sit down to get an answer and then stand up with the answer. (laughs) That I I always feel that at the very least, one should be extremely tentative about such things. Unless and until you have had enough experience to really be able to tell the difference between just a good idea, my idea, and genuine intuition. and even when really fabulous coincidences happen, which really fabulous coincidences happen, they do, you can not, there, there's this sort of way of not disregarding it, but not uh, betting the farm on it either. <laughs> you know, just sort of saying, hmm, interesting. And the whole thing about the movie again, it's like, hmm, let's see how this unfolds. You know, let's just see how this unfolds because. We have to practice. We have to practice finding out what's true. But just, hmm, let's see how this unfolds with just a super healthy um, respect. I mean, I've been wrong so many times in my life when I didn't know I was. Just, I was just wrong. I thought I was right and I was wrong. And after a while, oh, I just noticed that, as I often put it, some of my ideas are better than others. And sometimes I just have red-hot ideas. They're just great. And... You just let it flow. It's just not as easy because the prejudices of the heart and then so many, there's just so many ways that you get tricked. It's like, you know, it feels so right. Well, of course it feels so right. Your entire ego is committed to it, you know? So you have just a tremendous amount of power and then you have all this power and then you magnetize to yourself all these conforming signs and you can be just dead wrong all the way down the track. You can just mishear things right from the start. So just be humble. Really humble. Give it a try. And you know, God doesn't answer you that easily. It's just not that easy to just sit down and say, Oh Lord, what do you want me to do? Okay, I'll do this. And then you just get a lot of false notions, as Patanjali said. So you just move it a step at a time and see what the universe does for you. And then after a while, and after that while is a long while, you begin to say, oh yeah, every time it works out, it feels like this. Every time it doesn't, it feels like that. 
Or I see where I went wrong on this one. I see how I made this one okay. Because I, I, to be fair, you know, I sometimes I do just know. Oh yeah, that's really that. That's really how it's going to be. And there's a, there is a certain feeling that I now know is true. But I don't get that often. When, when Ananda went and demonstrated at the convocation, which was a hugely controversial thing and a gigantic thing to do. It, the intuition to do it just came to me at a certain moment. I absolutely knew it was the right thing to do and it would work. Um, I wasn't the one who, I wasn't the only initiator of that. Swami had suggested it several times and we hadn't done it. But all of a sudden I just could see it. And when it became hugely controversial and, and then it was very successful, um, I said, well, sir, I, I knew it would work. I always knew it would work because I felt it, I felt it in, that, in that certain way. He said, oh, yes, then, of course. <laughs> but, you what know, he, he said, oh, yes, then, of course. <laughs> and actually, even when we were talking about whether we should do it, I said, but, sir, it came to me in that certain way, which is very rare. I, I rarely say that, but it did. And I, didn't, and I didn't say it until it was over because it wasn't, I didn't want to presume. Even but when, never yeah, even when, but when he was really asking me, I said, "Well, sir, it came to me in that certain way." And then afterwards, I said, "Well, I knew, I never doubted, sir, because he raised doubts." I said, "Well, sir, I, none of that's going to happen. It's going to be fine. I just know it." But rarely do I ever say that because you have to really—it's really unique. You don't want to spend that one too cheaply. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. So, it, you know, to, to contrast it to the movie, I never had that feeling about the movie at all. It, to me, it was like a good idea. It was never an intuition. But other things that just relate to what Sai Ganesh says, you know, some things when they finally come, you just somehow, they're just so your own that you just know that you were born to do this. In an interesting sense, my whole Ananda life has been like that, which is every everything that was ever even somewhere in my consciousness has played itself out through Ananda. And it's another one of those things where you just don't have to worry about it. I mean, little interests. Like, I, I like theater. I used to work with children in theater, and all of a sudden, I, and suddenly I'm like, I'm in theater working with children. I have a kind of lawyer's mind. So we did years of this litigation, and the woman who was the lawyer lived, you know, right next door to us, and every afternoon we'd, you know, talk about legal strategies and things like that, and I had a little bit of politics, so I got to do a couple of political things in Nevada County. You know, just stuff that, it wasn't even that I wanted to, but it was in there for me to do. And when I started doing it, there was this, you know, flow to it that you could feel. The carrying a briefcase and wearing shoes that click when you walk on the model. <laughs> Walking through a courthouse, you know, click, 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 click. <laughs> And I just, it was a sort of this moment of, oh, look at me. <laughs> How did I get here? But it was because it was just there to have it. <laughs> and, and it wasn't, you know, deeply fulfilling, but a part of me wanted to be able to do that stuff. Yeah, it was fun. <laughs> and I was done. Biasa once told me about that. Biasa is a man who lives at Ananda village. He just talked about all these little desires he had to write scientific papers, to have a patent or two. You know, he just, he talked about how Master let him do it all just a little. You know, he got to touch every one of those areas and that was enough. 
got to write a paper here. He had a, filed a patent or two and stuff. Made a little discovery. But not, he didn't have to spend a whole lifetime doing it, but he got to touch it all. And that, that's, that's a certain, also, relaxation. If it's mine, it'll come to me. If I really need to do this, it'll happen. I don't have to sit here and be anxious about it. I put out energy when there's an opportunity to, but energy, well, nishkam karma, energy that's attached to the fruits is not going to be as good an energy as energy that is doing it because it's in front of me to do, but the results are in God's hands. Is that The results are in God's hands. Is that easy? Oh, no. (laughs) But that's why this path is so interesting. You know, it's just so interesting. Forty years later, you're just as interested as you were when you started because it just keeps happening on a more subtle level. It's more fun, actually. The longer you're on it, I think, the more fun it is. Because, you know, you have a, a few experiences under your belt and everything is not so scary. You can say, oh, yeah, we've been here before. I remember this one. I remember being totally freaked out and it all came out okay. And you can kind of say that to yourself. Okay. Um, number seven, which I had skipped. Man's destiny is not to live for eternity in a self-limiting body. The kingdom of God lies within. Man's true destiny is to realize his oneness with the infinite. This is Swamiji just taking down the idea of heaven is the way, in the way that people conceive of it. Which Swami describes eternity in a body very much like this one, he said, is my definition of hell, he says, not heaven. <laughs> in other words, to still be trapped by the ego. It's interesting just um, speaking of childhood expectations and how they're gradually fulfilled. I never could have articulated it until after I got onto the spiritual path. But the, the word that described my growing up years was confined. I felt so confined. And I didn't know that what confined me was my identification with the ego. And the first thought I had for breaking that confinement was to have a lot of children because then it would appear to me that I had multiplied. <laughs> that was just a, and all of this is in retrospect. But I, I had des- certain desires, because my life, I didn't really do what I thought I was going to do as a child, because this option never entered the picture, until it entered the picture completely. It, was, it never was in there in any incipient form. It was, I was completely lost, and then I discovered the path of self-realization, and that was it. Um, But when looking back, I realized that karmic memory, there was just this sense of of limitation and confinement that was suffocating to me. And people around me didn't even seem to be aware of it. And that all I was going to do was just, you know, somewhere in this extremely confining universe, I was going to find one little box that was going to be mine, and I was just going to suffocate and die in it. And nobody else even seemed to know that. But when the possibility of, of actual expansion came to me, then everything fell into place. And so you know, this, that's why this idea here of um, man's destiny is not to live for eternity in a self-limiting body. But you see how subtle this whole point is? The vibration of this? People live in their human forms and they don't even imagine that this personality is not them. And they think that the most wonderful thing would be to be in a comfy, happy place. And they say, the people who write from the astral world, they tell you that you get to manifest whatever you want. You get your little cottage by the sea, you get your little garden. 
Um, there's one story, and I don't even know if these are true or not, but they're apocryphal if they're not. One woman's grandfather came back and communicated with her, and the grandmother had always had a very narrow spirituality, and the grandfather had had a broader one. And so she asked, where is grandma? Oh, he said, she's sitting at the feet of God singing hymns. (laughs) (laughs) It's a little too neat for me to think it's even actually true. But it was just sort of like, if that's your idea of heaven, that's what you'll get. You know, as the Gita puts it in its brilliant way. In whatever form you worship God, in that form he will come to you. So if your idea is angels and sitting in heaven, or if your dream is a little cottage by the sea, they say in the astral world, you just get to fulfill it. And then you get discovered. You, you see, we, we think that God wants to deny our desires, so we'll give them up. But when our con- desires are constantly thwarted, we imagine a degree of fulfillment through those desires that is only imaginary. It's only when we actually get what we want and experience what it has to give us and then realize that there's more that we're able to put it aside. Which is why you do not see many people of the, what you would call the underprivileged class coming into a teaching like this. Because people who have never been able to have the fruits of, of success in the world or material comfort are not at all interested in transcending it or giving it up. They think it's just a trick because they, they need to drink that cup. And then, and then what you say is, is this it? Isn't there anything more? So many people come on the spiritual path not because they've suffered really particularly in this life, but because they're just, they don't know, there's nothing here for them. Nothing looks fulfilling, speaking of myself. There was nothing at all wrong with my life, but nothing looked fulfilling. And that was, uh, whoa, that was scary. That was really scary. That was when I thought, I think maybe I'll just lose my mind. Just out of desperation. Um, But it just, as I've said before, it just seems so impractical. Because I'm sure I've lost my mind in many lifetimes. And you lose your mind, and then they take you to the hospital, and then you're exhausted, and then everybody's all put out, and then you come out, and then you have to work to get back to right here. I mean, like, what is the point? (laughs) Because people do lose their mind existentially. They get right to the edge of seeing what... This this is how Swami put it to me. Because I've had... I sense... It's like a karmic... A close karmic memory for me. And I asked Swami that. He said, oh yes, it's a stage on the spiritual path. You stand right at the edge of the magnitude of what's being asked of you and you just decide to do something else. And you just go off for a while and just live in a world of your own making because, I mean, not everybody's, not everybody who is mentally unbalanced is actually having a spiritual experience. But some are. I don't mean that they're in, in their mental unbalance they're having a spiritual experience, but the catalyst for it was a perception of reality that was so big that they decided to retreat from reality altogether. Because that, that's all it is. You just decide, I don't want to be an objective reality, I'm going to go into purely subjective reality. Because objective realities, I just don't want to see it. You know, I, I just, this way I can just take a holiday. And that's what I remembered. I remembered having taken that holiday and it not having served me. 
So you know, if you if you're if you're subject to it yourself, it's just it's not anything to be afraid of. It's just a necessary karmic stage that you just work your way through. You know, by whatever means are appropriate, you just you just persevere in the face of it, and gradually it works itself out. You know, I know you work with people who are struggling in various ways, and you just work your way through it. Everything passes in time. Okay? Let me see if there's anything else, or if we'll just stop tonight. Well... He says, we can, only, we can find God only through the Christ consciousness which pervades all creation. It's a very subtle one. I'm afraid I can't really do that at 9 o'clock. What he's really saying is, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto me, um, to the Father, except through me. And it's very simple. He simply means Christ consciousness. But what he's actually saying, which is so dear, just what I was saying about, you know, mental imbalance, too. We all gradually, our consciousness will expand and purify, and sooner or later, we will go into the Christ consciousness. You remember what Master said to Swamiji when he had to play the role of Jesus in that tableau? And, and uh, Swamiji said, well, I'd rather be like Jesus than merely look like him. Oh, that will come, he said. I just love that. Oh, that will come. Oh, you're going through some difficult karma now, and you have a little delusion now, but sooner or later we'll just go away. Remember that story that Swami tells about Norman, who was subject to moods? And Norman came in in a mood, and Swami said, Oh, what is there to be concerned about? He said, How long can it last? 40, 50 years? (laughs) (laughs) And as he described it, Norman ran screaming from the room. (laughs) But already you could see what Swami's point of view was. Look, we have our guru, our salvation is assured. You have a little karma to live through. How long can it last? Because the Christ consciousness is there and we will achieve it. I mean, it's so absolutely beautiful. And, you know, it's not always easy. And when it's hard, it's really hard. But that doesn't mean it's complicated. It just means that somebody once was going through unbelievable karma, just one tragic thing. It was It was... Well, we used to jokingly, every year we would give the most dramatic karma of the year award out. Every once in a while. We didn't really do it every year, but every once in a while we did it. We gave it to Santosh for driving off the Yuba River Bridge and being, you know, he, he went, he did one of those things. He went down the hill and the brakes went out and he drove off the cliff and the car was stopped by a bush. We gave him the most dramatic karma of the year award and we said, Although there are no actual rules against winning it twice in a row, the committee does not advise doing so. so we all, I think we only actually gave the award once. Yeah, that, but it was very dramatic. Yeah. Um, but when the, this man was just buried under difficulties, he just said to Swamiji, you know, help. And Swami looked at him and he said, you know, I really don't know what to say except all karma ends. And it was actually interesting because for that man too, it, it did. You know, it just, it lasted for longer than any, he wanted it or anyone wanted it to. But then it did end because all karma ends. And sometimes that is the only thing you can say to yourself. You know, all karma ends, including this. And all I have to do is just keep breathing. Swami um, Shankarananda said that. When all else fails... Just keep breathing. (laughs) 
He said, if you just keep breathing, sooner or later, it, something else will happen. Yeah. Over the bridge? Over the, yeah, it wasn't his time to go. I think he might have even had a trailer. Truck and a trailer. Yeah, he just went over the edge. It was very dramatic. Very, very dramatic. Okay, great souls. Oh, yes, Arthur has a question. Was there, was there a lesson involved? With him driving off the cliff? Was that the question about the man driving off the... He asked if there was a lesson involved in the man. I, I, I said Santosh. It's not the Santosh you know. It was an, an, a man much earlier at Ananda who had the same name. Not as far as I know. It was just a saved by the guru moment. Yeah, it was just a real saved by the guru moment. I, I'm trying to remember if it was him or someone else. There was a picture of Master and as the car went off the pack... The, no, that was... That was something. Oh, that was you. That was you. That happened to. Yes, and the pictures. Master ended up equidistant from the four unseatbelted people in the car. Face up. Wow. Yeah, it's a saved by the guru moment. What can you say? Yeah, it's not your time to go, and but there you have it. We should. I mean, most dramatic karma. Just, just picture. Amazing. Okay, that's it. We'll do one more week on this, and then we're going to go to the Mahabharata. After a week off, right? Yes, we take a week off when Swami's here. I won't teach while he's here.